Name suppression is granted to ensure accused people get a fair trial and to protect them from suffering undue hardship. But has the practice become too extensive? A series of cases over the last five years has led to claims that different rules appear to apply to celebrities and sports stars. Now the Justice Minister Simon Power is moving to tighten up the regulations surrounding who gets name suppression and the penalties when it's breached. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, court reporter Anne-Marie May takes a closer look. Silence will stand for his honour the judge. An all-black admits assaulting his pregnant partner but is granted name suppression. Likewise, a so-called prominent entertainer who pleaded guilty to an indecent act likely to offend his 16-year-old victim and a 26-year-old fading pop star who punched a man during a drunken scuffle in Wellington. These are some of the decisions which have led to accusations that the rich and well-known are treated differently in the eyes of the law. Blogger Cameron Slater is at the forefront of calls to reduce the number of people granted name suppression. A prominent person in the marriage guidance counselling business who has name suppression for uh, really rather vicious crimes against former partners and wives, and he's running a counselling business, and the reason why he was given the name suppression was to protect his business. You know, the hypocrisy of that is quite appalling. So what are the current rules around suppression? At present, it's dealt with under the Criminal Justice Act, which says a court may prohibit publication of the name, address or occupation of a person accused or convicted of an offence or particulars likely to lead to their identification. The Act says when determining whether to make such an order, the court must take into account the views of victims or their parent or legal guardian, and anyone who breaches a suppression order is liable on conviction to a fine of up to $1,000. But how well does the system work? Well, it's obviously been the subject of a considerable amount of controversy and discussion, and that's led to the changes to the legislation planned by the Minister for Justice. The Chief District Court Judge, Russell Johnson, describes the present law as very general and says judges are guided by case law from the higher courts which have declared that open justice is to be a judge's primary concern. He says the draft he's seen of the proposed changes is much clearer about the issues to be considered when suppression sought. The real risk of prejudice to a trial, avoiding undue hardship to a victim, avoiding endangering anybody's safety or leading to the identification of another person whose name is suppressed or the old sore of casting suspicion on somebody else who's innocent. The Justice Minister, Simon Powell, says rightly or wrongly there's a growing concern at present that there are two standards when it comes to name suppression, one for those who regard themselves as well-known and another for those who don't fall into that category, and that's what the proposed changes are trying to address. The criteria for applying it has been too wide, the discretion too wide, and in my view, too liberally applied. Now, that's not a criticism of judges because they're only working within the current law. Parliament's job is to give a very clear signal of what their expectation is in that regard. However, Michael Bott, a Wellington barrister who works in the area of human rights and criminal law, says regardless of what the public thinks, name suppression is not given easily by the courts. It's a perception that may be created, for example, by the media and by the reporting of these things. When you look at the sheer volume and scale 
of prosecutions in New Zealand on a year-in, year-out basis. Most of those proceed without suppression orders. The fact that some are cherry-picked because they're interesting or salacious by the media creates an impression which is perhaps more imagined than real, and the minister may be responding to a media perception. The president of the Law Society, Jonathan Tim, agrees and says it's not valid to change the suppression rules on the basis that some people think some famous people have had suppression when they shouldn't have. The reality was it was never enough in the first place and it hasn't been the rule for some time that fame of itself warrants name suppression. So we're concerned about it and we don't want this to be another rushed discussion all in the aim of satisfying some of the sectional interest groups we have in our community who are constantly crying out for change. Really you need to have a much more principled approach to this. He says being too prescriptive about the criteria for name suppression may simply create a straitjacket through which the judiciary has to try and work. Mr Tim says the Law Society believes judges should have broad discretion and must be trusted, as by and large they do make the right decisions. People want to point at the one or two isolated examples and say, look at that over there, it's all gone wrong, we should be changing things. Whereas my response is, well hang on a minute, over here there are literally hundreds of cases that have worked out decidedly well, and I think you need to be more cautious about changing things because of one or two anomalies. Garth Galloway, a Christchurch lawyer who acts for a number of sports people, believes that to say being famous has been grounds for name suppression is somewhat insulting to the judiciary. Because uh, judges are given a number of factors to consider and they have to perform a balancing act and weigh up all of those factors. So it's not the fact that people are famous that for that reason that they get name suppression, it's because of potential hardship to them as a result of their names being published that name suppression is granted. Garth Galloway says the two most likely grounds on which name suppression is granted to sports people and celebrities at present are the need to ensure a fair trial and the possibility that naming the person would create extreme hardship. He says the possibility of creating extreme hardship is different for an athlete than for an ordinary person. Most athletes who have sponsorship contracts and contracts with national organisations will have clauses in those contracts that say that if they do anything which brings the brand or the organisation into disrepute, then that gives the sponsor or the sporting body the opportunity to terminate the contract. So the issue, of course, is whether by being charged with an offence with a presumption of innocence, an athlete is then deemed to bring a sport or a sponsorship organisation into disrepute. Garth Galloway says it's those factors which are relevant for a judge when weighing up whether or not an athlete should be given name suppression. The Law Society's Jonathan Tim believes there's a wider question that needs to be asked. He says changes such as those proposed regarding name suppression are often said to be made in the public interest, but he questions just what that means. Because public interest is often, from my perspective anyway, public curiosity or gossip or usually media is trying to sell extra copy and increase circulation by tearing down people who are prominent in the community and publishing details about them long before guilt or any allegation has ever been established. The new law promulgated by Simon Powell sets out the grounds on which courts will be able to make suppression orders. They include where there is a risk of prejudice to a fair trial, to prevent undue hardship to victims, and to avoid publication if it would identify victims. Until now, victims of sexual offences and witnesses under the age of 17 have had automatic name suppression. But the bill proposes raising that age to 18 and also granting name suppression to all child victims.
The Chief District Court Judge Russell Johnson says it'll be helpful to have those matters articulated in legislation, but in some ways the amendments are really not much more than what judges have started doing in the last couple of years. Labour's Justice Spokesperson Leanne Dalzell believes writing the threshold for name suppression into the law will give the public confidence that those decisions are being made in a consistent and fair way. I think that some of the instances where name suppression has been granted to high-profile people, they have been granted for the right reasons, but the public don't know that. And I think that when the public see the criteria written out and they know that they are going to be applied in each and every case, then that will improve how it's perceived. So do the proposed changes go far enough? Cameron Slater, the publisher of the Whale Oil blog, has run a crusade against name suppression, which resulted in him being prosecuted and convicted earlier this year for breaching suppression orders on his website. He was fined $750 for each count, a total amount of $6,750 along with court costs, but he remains unrepentant and questions the need for name suppression at all. Mr Slater says there are ways to name offenders while still protecting the anonymity of their victims. He points to the case of the former Christian heritage leader Graham Capel, who was jailed for nine years after being convicted of multiple sexual offences against young girls. He applied for name suppression. The judge said, I'm refusing to give you name suppression, but what I'm going to do is give name suppression for his victim and went a step further and actually suppressed the details of the nature of the relationship so that people couldn't guess or surmise. The reality is is that even when there is no name suppression in place, the media doesn't go after all of the salacious details of the victim. They just don't do that. However, Labour's spokesperson Leanne Dalzell doesn't believe getting rid of name suppression altogether would work, as there are some circumstances where she believes it's really important. Nobody would want to see the right to a fair trial diminished by the publication of identity, where the publication would endanger the safety of any person. You know, if somebody's being charged with an offence and it's gang-related and, you know, the person that's giving evidence is somehow related, there are issues that people have to have covered. So those sorts of questions, they really have to be catered for in the law. Robert, not his real name, is someone who's benefited from the current rules on name suppression. He was falsely accused of a crime and eventually acquitted. His lawyer successfully argued for interim name suppression when he was arrested, and that stayed in place until the end of his trial, when the name suppression was made permanent. The words are his, but they've been voiced by an actor to protect his anonymity. For us, following acquittal, it has allowed us to reconstruct our lives without the ongoing attention or spotlight. Suppression for us, we felt, was justified, and in the circumstances it allowed us to try and rebuild some normality around our lives. It was the best we could hope for. Robert believes name suppression is important for people who are falsely accused as he was, and says it's given him the opportunity to rebuild relationships, particularly with his family, away from the glare of publicity. Our lives post-acquittal can never return back to normal. We're in a different construct in trying to rebuild another life for ourselves. It's tragic and unfortunate, but that is our reality. Suppression to that extent allows us to do that undisturbed, and that is the very least the system can provide for us given the false accusation, given the acquittal, and given these additional effects or impact on us caused by that process on our lives. The Christchurch lawyer Garth Galloway points out the difficulties with cases that turn out to be based on a false complaint. 
Mr Galloway says in the early stages of proceedings the judge will have little idea if the complaint is false and this makes it difficult for any decision to be made about name suppression. He says, for example, when an athlete appears in court, a number of matters have to be considered before name suppression is granted. The court will be charged with weighing up what sort of considerations it should take into account, the potential harm to an athlete, the difficulty for the branding of that athlete, the ability for the athlete to earn money in the future against the interests of the public in knowing who that person is and indeed if the victim wants the person identified, the interests of the victim as well. Garth Galloway says it's impossible to put a monetary value on the cost to an athlete of a false accusation, but draws a comparison with the consequences for golf star Tiger Woods, which flowed from his off-course misdemeanours. However, he doesn't believe that Simon Power's aim of tightening up name suppression will make much difference for athletes and other celebrities who are brought before the courts on charges which are fully proven. I think the days of, for example, high-profile rugby players being involved in domestic violence and getting name suppression are long over before even this legislation comes in, unless there are very good grounds more likely to relate, I suspect, to the victim as opposed to the athlete himself. Because of the risk of false accusations, should everyone charged with a crime get name suppression, at least for their first appearance? It's a complicated issue. But the Justice Minister Simon Powell says as a matter of principle, the starting point should be that justice is open and transparent. Presumably it's no different to an acquittal or a finding of not guilty in any other case where name suppression would not be applied for or for that matter apply. I think you know your question goes to the very point that's concerned me for some time, which is this view amongst some that there should be two standards. One if you happen to think you're particularly well known, and then another standard if you're not. And I don't accept that. The law has to apply equally to all citizens, regardless of their so-called status. However, the Law Society president, Jonathan Tim, says there have been some quite celebrated cases of people who were charged and later found to have been wrongly accused, and he's quite concerned about those whose names are publicised in those circumstances. I wonder if the minister would give consideration in his new policy to giving them a right of compensation from either the Crown or the media outlets that have published what turns out to be in fact defamatory and false material about them. There should be a statutory right to a strict liability claim of compensation that couldn't be denied now that the media have published them in the way that they have. Jonathan Tim says it often appears that the outcome of false allegation trials seems to be hidden away in a paper, whereas when the allegation was first made, it can often be a banner headline on the front page. The Media Freedom Committee, which represents editors and news directors at the country's major media organisations, made a detailed submission when the Law Commission put out a discussion paper on name suppression. Committee member Suzanne Carty says that one of the biggest problems at present is finding out when a suppression order is in place and what it covers. You can find that a suppression order sometimes has been imposed late in the day when suddenly a judge decides to suppress information that was provided earlier in the afternoon and everybody's gone to press by then, or certainly afternoon newspapers have, and perhaps radio bulletins have gone out as well. So we need to have it quite clear what suppression orders are in place and how long they exist for and what they cover. The Minister, Simon Powell, says he sees merit in the creation of a register of suppressed names and suppressed evidence and material, and that's being investigated, but it still needs to be worked through. There is a case for saying that the material should be collated in one place. Now, who pays for that? 
and how it's run, of course, is still very much in the ether. So that work is sort of trundling along. I'm not ruling it out, but it won't be included in the new legislative changes. If a suppression register was eventually established, it's likely it would be run by the Ministry of Justice and would be password protected in some way to ensure it wasn't accessed by those outside the media. However, the blogger Cameron Slater believes that could also be problematic because he says in running such a register, the ministry itself would be publishing material which is already suppressed. The blogging community is also concerned that the proposed legislation gives certain rights to what the bill calls the legitimate media, including the right to remain in court when it's closed to the public and the right to appeal against the granting of a suppression order. David Farrer from the popular Kiwi blog website was appalled about the term legitimate media and says even if he'd tried, Minister Simon Power couldn't have come up with a phrase more likely to annoy the blogging community. But Labour's Leanne Delzell can understand why the proposed legislation distinguishes between the blogosphere and the mainstream media. She says traditional media are covered by codes of ethics and there are established complaints procedures available to the public, but bloggers aren't obliged to meet those same standards. You're expressing your opinion and you're obviously expressing it in a very firm and often unfair way. But accuracy, a degree of fairness, maybe these are things that can be worked through. And maybe they're not the right standards for bloggers, but if there was a code of ethics around how they operated and a mechanism for the public to actually hold them to account, then I think they should attract rights that the print and broadcasting media will claim under their code. David Farris says since bloggers will be held responsible if they breach suppression, then they should also be able to access a register if one is established. Mr Farrer points to the recent case of the Auckland local body elections candidate Daljeet Singh, who has been charged with forging voting documents. He says he legally revealed Mr Singh's arrest before he appeared in court, but there was no number he could call to find out whether interim name suppression had been granted after the court appearance. What I actually did was phone up the New Zealand Herald Press Gallery, who very kindly checked with their Auckland court reporter, and they came back around two hours later to let me know. Now, that's not how I should have to find out, and most people probably can't phone up mates in the Herald Press Gallery to do it. So if you're going to bring this in, give us the information and the tools so we can actually obey the law easier. David Farrer also believes that giving only the mainstream media the right to stay in a closed court session is no guarantee that what's said there will remain confidential. It always gets out because, to be blunt, legitimate media representatives gossip. They tell everyone back in the office, they tell their friends, etc. I'm not saying that means they're bad, but the idea that if you exclude bloggers and only let reporters into a closed court session, it's not going to get out there. You know, good luck with that. The blogger Cameron Slater doesn't believe the changes to the suppression rules will be able to stop information getting out. We've had WikiLeaks release 400,000 secret US military documents on the Iraq war. Previously, 40,000 documents were released about the Afghan war. If the US government can't keep their secret documents from the internet, how's Simon Power going to try and moderate or control people who uh, don't want to be moderated or controlled? And there's a reason why people like myself are bloggers. We don't want to fit into mainstream media. We want to create our own way forward. 
With more than 600,000 comments on his Kiwi blog site, David Farah also points to the difficulty of quickly tracking down and removing any material which might be in breach of a suppression order, as was demonstrated with the Daljeet Singh case before his name suppression was lifted. But someone had actually written a little ditty about we don't know who it is but we'll sing for our supper. Without the H on there, and I honestly, even though I had seen the comment, didn't click on, oh, he's giving a hint here, um, until someone pointed it out. So there is still going to be a bit of dangerous territory where you may think you've deleted all the offending comments, but people are so, you know, Cameron, of course, went to court arguing that some of his subtle ways of naming people didn't really count. David Farris also laid an official complaint with the police over TVNZ's coverage of the case. During the channel's report following the granting of interim name suppression to Mr Singh, the camera zoomed in on a Labour Party billboard focusing on Mr Singh's photo, something which David Farrer claims is a clear breach of the order granting suppression of his name and identity. Fellow blogger Cameron Slater claims that the lack of action on that complaint shows he's been unfairly singled out for breaching suppression orders. The evidence is right there before us. It was broadcast on nationwide news. I think that Nielsen statistics show something like 300,000 people or more watched the news. Arguably their breach was far worse than mine. I doubt they'll be prosecuted. The Justice Minister Simon Power isn't ruling out that a suppression order register, if one's established, be opened up to bloggers in some way, but he is concerned that internet commentators and bloggers don't have the same sort of oversight as the traditional media. We just have to make sure that the court system, in the way that it addresses issues like suppression, keeps up with technology. So this is not a criticism of bloggers necessarily or of those that use the internet. It's just a matter of the justice system responding to the new world, effectively. The bill proposes increasing the maximum term of imprisonment for breaching suppression from three months to six months and raising the fine for organisations which breach the rules from $5,000 to $100,000. Sue Carty from the Media Freedom Committee says that makes it even more important that the media gets it right regarding name suppression. Editors don't disagree with that, but their argument in response, and this is what we will be saying to the Minister when the time comes to make submissions on his legislation, is that that's one leg of the double. The other leg of the double is that there has to be a way for us to find out what suppression orders are in place so we don't commit contempt. And that's where we will be making strong recommendations to Mr Power when the time comes. Garth Galloway, the lawyer and representative of several sports players, thinks the increase in penalties for breaching name suppression is a good thing. He says it's disgraceful that some people take the law into their own hands and use the internet as a means of getting around court-ordered name suppression. The sort of people who go around railing on the internet and disclosing people's names are probably not there listening to the name suppression application, do not understand all of the factors that a judge has weighed up uh, in granting that application and simply shoot from the hip. Um, So as as a disincentive, yes, I think where there are very deliberate disclosures, as we've seen in, in recent times here in New Zealand, uh, you know, the punishment should be very serious indeed. The president of the Law Society, Jonathan Tim, agrees. There does need to be some recognition that where suppression orders are made, 
then the court's determination in that must be respected. And people who then go and flagrantly breach it, usually for their own motivations, either personal bloggers or for circulation and publication reasons for large organisations, well then there must be an appropriate penalty for that. The bill which contains the proposed changes to name suppression has just had its first reading. Minister Simon Power hopes people take the opportunity to comment on it when it goes to a select committee. I think New Zealanders who are extremely fair-minded and equitable people share the view that suppression shouldn't be something that's available to a particular group of New Zealanders and not to another group. It'll do a full six months at a select committee. So I welcome the input of um, new media, of bloggers and commentators in cyberspace as well as traditional media and um, let's see where we get to. Sue Carty from the Media Freedom Committee says the organisation which represents mainstream media isn't against name suppression per se. Even though we will disagree from time to time about a suppression order that has been put in place, a lot of the time they are in place for good reason, such as making sure that somebody has a fair trial. And it is appropriate that all of us, and that includes bloggers and members of the internet community, abide by those suppression orders. Kiwi blogger David Farris keen to make a submission to the Select Committee, but says he hopes groups with an interest in the area, such as the Law Commission, Internet New Zealand and the Press Council, will run seminars on the issue before then. We had one November last year called R vs the Internet. It was provocatively asking, is the Internet in contempt of court? And I actually found, getting that range of views from judges, Crown law, to defence lawyers, to Internet practitioners, was really good. So I actually see it's an opportunity to actually have a good discussion about it and then lead that into select committee submissions. Jonathan Tim from the Law Society says his organisation has a statutory duty to be involved in law reform and will be making a submission on the proposed changes. However, he says the Society's concerned once again about the urgency with which proposed legislative change is being handled. The Minister is very energetic and is clearly intent on reforming, but our hope is that the reforms are achieved with some degree of balance and logic rather than saying that the end goal is worthwhile and so it doesn't matter how we get there because our experience has been that if you don't give enough detailed thought to some of these things you actually lock yourself into a worse position than the one you're coming from. That concern is echoed by the human rights barrister Michael Bott who says the proposed changes to name suppression are very similar to the rushing through of the legislation that removed the partial defence of provocation. That also has had disastrous impacts potentially for women who wish to run a defence of battered wives syndrome or battered spouse syndrome because of years of abuse. They can't run provocation anymore and I think that was a case of legislation in haste to meet the need to be perceived as being tough on law and order. However, Labour's Leanne Dalzell believes the new rules for suppression will work well if they're implemented. The key feature will be the removal of the perception of two standards the removal of the perception of unfairness and the standardising of suppression orders from one end of the country to the other by setting the thresholds in law. And I think that's a good thing. It should improve confidence in our justice system. Whether the proposals are implemented or not, the Christchurch lawyer Garth Galloway says it won't change the advice he gives to the sports stars he represents. 
what I'm telling them is that regardless of this legislation and regardless of what's going through, if they get into trouble, they should assume that they won't get name suppression. They should assume that their sponsorships and so on are likely to be affected and that that's a very good reason for staying out of trouble. The select committee process is expected to get underway next year. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Anne-Marie May. Technical production was by Leanne Smith and it was produced by Sue Ingram. More Insight documentaries are available and can be downloaded from radionz.co.nz forward slash insight.